This is episode 67 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 67 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, recorded at the New York Encounter, we chat with Greg Wolf, a writer, editor, publisher, and teacher. We chat about what a robust Christian humanist tradition can look like and how there is room in the church for artists and writers who both shout and whisper. Let's sit down in the makeshift studio for this wonderful conversation. Well, Greg Wolf, thank you so much for coming to be with us. Glad to be here. Thanks for asking me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What did you study? Kind of those sorts of things. Well, you're asking me here at an event being held in New York City, the New York Encounter, and that's actually where I grew up. I grew up here in, in Manhattan. Um, wasn't born here, but I came at a very tender age, and so my earliest memories are of this big city. And uh, so I love coming back. I um, had a father who was a writer, primarily an advertising man, but with a strong literary strain. My mother was the daughter of a, of a painter and quite an artistic person in her own right. So my earliest memories include being wheeled in my stroller to places like the Guggenheim Museum, as well as the Metropolitan. And I did occasionally beg to be taken to the Natural History Museum, but I was exposed to art so young that I was didn't have any defenses against it. So it just, I drank it all in. I didn't think anything was weird. You know, when you're five or six, these are things that you just come to believe are part of life, right? If I'd, if I'd been a little older, I probably would have, oh, that's, this is stupid. I don't like this. <laughs> so for me, kind of my interests in life were really represented by my parents, the literary and the visual arts in this larger kind of sense. And I was also very much I lived in an environment where I could see the classics at the Metropolitan, but I could see the contemporary at places like the Guggenheim. And again, I, I didn't see any conflict between them. This will come relevant maybe in some of the things I'll say in, in a little bit, but, you know, it, it was part of how I was formed. So then where did you go off to do your studies? Well, we moved out to Long Island and eventually up to the South Shore of Boston. So I'm northeastern in general terms, um, but New York feels like home. I, I went to a small college in Michigan called Hillsdale College, not far from Notre Dame. But well known to uh, center folks. Of yeah. course. Yeah. And in fact, one of our visiting professors was a, a full professor at your university, none other than Gerhard Niemeyer, a great political philosopher who was a big, big influence in my life and um, who, bless him, invited me to come and visit him during football weekends. Only a couple, I think, that I remember, but there was this guy named Joe. What was his name? Joe Idaho? Just kidding. <laughs> it, was, it was Joe Montana. That's, that takes you, that, that pretty much sets my age in stone <laughs> right there. But um, so Notre Dame was this 
you know, big presence not too far away from us, but we were, we were pretty busy with our lives at Hillsdale. So that was my undergraduate where I double majored in history and English. And then um, I got accepted at Oxford, but with a one-year deferral. So I, I, I did some work for a couple different organizations and then went off to do two-year, essentially a master's degree. It was actually the undergraduate program, but the second and third years of the undergraduate program there. And it really always essentially functioned as a master's for me. And uh, I was always interested in... Yes, the intellectual life, but I wasn't, I was too interested in being a man of action, so to speak, and not a full professor, full scholar. I, I, I my heroes were people like Chesterton, mm -hmm. Samuel Johnson, um, people who were not strictly speaking in academia, but who, who wrote and published and edited. So I, I kind of left it there after my Oxford degree, and I got drawn into academia, but I've always been on the periphery, you know, and I've been cool with that. I didn't earn the PhD, so the people with them wanted to always remind me of that, and that's fine. They worked hard for them, and they deserve to have a little bit of pride. But I, uh, I, but I got drawn in, and so I've had various teaching gigs over the years. Um, but those are those are my uh, undergraduate and graduate experiences. If I remember right, you actually have been honored with a doctorate though, right? By the, by our mutual school, in this case, the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology. Uh, the folks at the DSPT were certainly very kind to, to offer me uh, an honorary doctorate for my work in the arts and, and culture and, um, and they admitted me into their College of Fellows, which is a wonderful group of people I'm very honored to be part of. Yeah. A doctor of humane letters? Something like that. <laughs> I, you know, I take these things with a, a very lightly. Yeah. Well, now you yourself uh, are a convert to the Catholic faith. How did you, uh, what brought you into the church? Well, there's a Grateful Dead line. It goes something like, what a long, strange trip it's been. <laughs> so you don't need the whole, the longer version, but it's sort of a bit like a Dostoevsky novel. Um, the short version is that I, when I was a child, we went to the Christian Science Church. And then as a teenager, we switched over to the Congregational. At Hillsdale, I became enamored of the Anglican tradition with my mother's Scottish, so I had a very Anglophile nature and loved British poetry. And I loved people like C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot. And then... But I was having difficulties even then um, staying with the Anglicans, although they really introduced me to what a liturgical sacramental tradition might look like. And then when I went to Oxford, um, like so many others, including Cardinal Newman, um, that's when I, as they say over there, poped. <laughs> or as they say even more slangily, I went over to Auntie. <laughs> the British have, you know, beautiful, beautiful nicknames and that that sort of mock and trivialize things, yeah. which I, I've always loved. Wow. You are a member of Communion and Liberation, who is sponsoring and puts on this New York encounter. I am indeed. How did you get connected to and, and become well, part of Well, part of my life has been working, you know, on a regular basis as a book reviewer. And somebody gave me a book in the late 1980s called Morality. 
which, you know, in general, I approve of morality. I think it's, you know, more or less a good thing. But normally I wouldn't. I mean, I'm a, I'm a creative writing guy. I don't, I don't read dry books about morality. But what got me about this particular book, aside from the strange Italian name I couldn't pronounce, was the subtitle. Once I found the subtitle, which was, it's, so the book, the full title is Morality, Memory, and Desire memory and desire and that that hooked me immediately partly because that phrase memory and desire i don't know if jasani meant it or not but it, it's literally the same as the phrase it's central to the wasteland by t.s Eliot. Mm-hmm. and these words are so evocative memory and desire they're not dry rule about rules and concepts they're very existential terms you might say they're rooted in human experience and being a guy who really for better or worse i don't i can't do philosophy and theology in the strict sense i'm not good at abstraction but i've always history literature art these are concrete media that i my brain can relate to it much better than i can with these larger if you ask me what the categorical categorical imperative is i you know i couldn't even begin to tell you what that is but i i love this idea of memory and desire so i read the book and it was in this very strange, sort of highly rhetorical Italian style. And I remember thinking, I'm not sure I understand a single word, but I love this stuff. <laughs> like, it appealed to me so intuitively. I just thought, this this guy understands faith and understands um, really the most fundamental questions in a way that is so refreshing that all kind of in a way liberates me from certain ideas about what religion and religiosity and even holiness might look like and be like. And I thought, I, I, I want to know more about it. But I was so young in, in my Catholicism at that point, I hadn't even heard of something called a movement. Nobody had ever told me about a lay movement. I mean, I thought that might have, maybe that was part of a symphony or something like <laughs> the lay movement. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> So I asked around about it, and uh, I remember at the time I, I had to drive two hours to find a group that had were meeting, and I had young kids at the time, and I couldn't keep up at four hours in the car just to go to the weekly meetings as much as I wanted to, but I kind of kept tabs on them over the years, and eventually I met with the Monsignor Lorenzo Albacete, who is the leader of the movement at that time. And this is back in 2002. And I told him my story of woe that that CL was never in any of the cities that I had been living in. And he said, in his beautiful, deep, basso, profundo, Puerto Rican voice, well, why don't you become the movement where you are? And I said, I can't do that. I mean, at least send me some Italians, you know, people who came from the heart of this experience. And so, but I, he kind of convinced me to put my my email address out and immediately two Italians contacted me (laughs) and they said, you know, we are Marcella and Michele from Foggia. We're coming to work for Boeing in Seattle. Tell us about the community there. And I, I wrote back and said, Oh, solo mio. (laughs) I mean, cause I hadn't even started to do anything, but we met together, you know, every two weeks for a year. And I really began to understand what this thing called school of community was about and then we had Monsignor Albacete come out to give a talk, and we had a sign-up sheet. That was 2004, I believe, and we've been meeting continuously since then. So 
yeah, it's become a very big part of my life. An actual thing. Wow. Well, now, you describe yourself as an advocate for the tradition of Christian humanism. I hear that phrase, and my mind goes to Desiderius Erasmus, the Dutch priest, philosopher, and theologian who wrote about reform from within the church while the Protestant reformers were urging reform from outside. What does the term Christian humanism mean to you? Well, it's a it's a rich and varied term, and I think it's a tradition in the history of the church that has actually arisen in many, many eras. I think in some ways the Renaissance era is probably like the perfect quintessential moment for it. But I would say, you know, you look at somebody like an Augustine. I mean, Christian humanism on one level is a belief that faith needs to be made into culture, that faith left to too dry a doctrinal or theoretical framework loses touch with human experience, becomes anything that becomes too abstract can become, become inhuman. And what literature and the arts and rhetoric do is put clothing on, you know, uh, the imagination on these large, big theological, philosophical concepts. They incarnate it. And in fact, the incarnation is what I use as kind of my shorthand for Christian humanism, because Christian humanism is really the place where the human and the divine meet and intersect where you're not too vertical. It's like a cross, you might say. Mm -hmm. Interesting metaphor, a yeah. cross, right? <laughs> the vertical left to itself is too abstract, too doctrinal, too, too morality-oriented. It's handing down the thunderbolt from on high. Too horizontal, and, and, you know, that's the conserv what I call the conservative sin. The liberal sin is too horizontal a view. It's too much compassion, not enough morality, too, too much empathy, but without any larger sense of boundaries or definitions about our human experience and our moral relationship to each other. So for me, Christian humanism balances justice and mercy, divine and human, uh, you know, the here and now with the eternal. And it does so in a, in a kind of keynote way via artistic literary expression, which there's a great book called Four Cultures of the Church by John O'Malley, a brilliant church historian who teaches it at um, Georgetown. And, and he, he argues that of the four cultures, which are one theological culture, which is very much thou shalt, you know, it's the, the prophetic voice. The second culture is the academic intellectual culture, which is very much the skeptical, you know, um, sort of uh, skeptical, probing, intellectual mind. The third culture is the rhetorical, literary culture. And the fourth culture is, is the visual and the performing arts. So what he says is the, the first two cultures, the theological and the intellectual, can become, they're very powerful. They speak to us in you know, really powerful ways, and they have strong imperatives. But left to themselves, they do become abstract and therefore less relatable and less human. The rhetorical, the, second, the third and the fourth cultures put clothing on them, make them 
sort of live up to reality. They, 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 they incarnate them in drama, in poetry, in, in paintings, in ways where we have to actually, these things have to hold up. They have to convince us. They have to move us. They have to move the heart and not just the head. Yeah. They engage the, the body and, and the they community. They are embodied in yeah. the deepest. And that's why I keep going back to the incarnation. Yeah. I think of somebody like Erasmus as a, uh, a gadfly, you know, kind of this, in a way, kind of the Socrates of his day, kind of questioning everything, both, you know, outside and inside. Yeah. And he's having my, no home in a way. He's my hero because he, he's, he's very contradictory. And I think a lot of people are contradictory. Many of the most fascinating people are deeply contradictory. I mean, on the one level, you're right. He was a gadfly. He was... He was criticizing what he thought to be the excesses of monastic power structures and a kind of superstitious kind of faith. I think Christian humanists, I guess my shorthand would be they tend to push back against whatever the prevailing sort of power, you know, ideology of the moment is. And I think if if Erasmus had lived 100 years later, he probably would have been championing liturgy and sacraments. But in his particular moment... You know, he was criticizing the church. And, and again, he's somebody who was willing to be a gadfly, but he never, never thought about leaving. Yeah. He, he felt that would, you know, just destroy everything. It, you know, he, he was somebody who believed in the long, the long game. And, and that meant investing in something that was often not very exciting, which was kind of working from within and believing that that was ultimately the most you know, holistic and wise and effective way to affect reform. Yeah. Wow. Well, now you were the founding editor of Image Journal, which for more than 30 years now has published writing and art, quote, informed by or grappling with uh, religious faith. You were also writer in residence at Seattle Pacific University, where you taught English literature and creative writing. And now you're the managing editor of Slant Books, where you're publishing poetry and novels and conversations, grappling with many of these same issues and themes. Now, from your perch, as one deeply entrenched in the world, what does this Christian humanist literary world look like right now? Right. You know, for me, it, it's always come down to, I, I mean, I mentioned at the very beginning how I was at home as a child in New York with, you know, one day seeing the, the Dutch masters and the next day seeing, you know, op art in the Guggenheim. And that that stuck with me. I, I felt like as I was growing up and I could see the kind of culture wars beginning to form and uh I mean, I'm a deeply traditional person in the sense that I'm, I'm an unapologetic adherent, faithful son of the Roman Catholic Church and the teaching of the magisterium. And I'm, I'm never going to apologize or abandon that, under, except under torture, which I probably would. But <laughs> at any rate, um, and yet I always felt instinctively that if that tradition couldn't inspire contemporary new things, new New art and new literature that, while they stylistically might be different from what came before, um, were nonetheless synthesizing something very ancient and very modern. And for me, the, the two writers who, who did that preeminently were T.S. Eliot in poetry and Flannery O'Connor in literature. They were both very contemporary in their style. And But I, my, a lot of my conservative brethren and sisterin 
were like, oh, anything after such and such a date is all going downhill. A very, they were addicted to a declinist, what I call a declinist narrative. And I just thought inherently that that's wrong, that that's a kind of despair. It's the, you know, it's assuming like the Holy Spirit is locked in a cage in somebody's basement somewhere and can't bring about the new. So I was on the lookout. And I honestly, when I started out, I didn't know whether I would find contemporary artists and writers who were doing what Elliot and O'Connor did. And, you know, 40 years into this search, I think I've dug up a few. And, you know, um, for me, that was an important thing. And I, at that time in the late 80s, there were a lot of people who just felt it was not, it was an impossibility. And I'm glad to say that, you know, some of the work, and I certainly was not alone in, in working this particular vineyard. There are many others who have done that, but I, I felt privileged to be there at that particular moment. So my interest is, has always been on, on finding the contemporary, you know, who's being the bloodhound to go out there. Who's, who are the good writers? Who are the, who's the new Flannery O'Connor, you know, like give that person a sandwich, like make sure they can eat, you know, like they have a place to sleep at night. I just particular calling I've always felt. And I know some people want to stick with the classics and that's fine. But I think to me, I buy into Elliot's idea that you lose the tradition if you don't work in the new, you know, cause his argument was every new artist who lives up to the tradition changes our connection to the tradition, but at the same time links us to that tradition. And of course, Eliot himself did is we, we read Dante in a different way than we read Dante before Eliot because he loved Dante and channeled him so much in his poetry. So that's been my vocation, whether it's been publishing a journal, starting a graduate program for creative writers or running a, an independent, you know, nonprofit press with, to publish books has been who are the contemporary writers who are carrying on the tradition, who are extending the tradition. Yeah. The other, the flip side of that is not just finding them, but also finding the market for them to, to speak to. So what about the other side, the selling of subscriptions? Is that a, is that a world? Is there, is there hope there? There is some hope. I, I wouldn't say it has ended in great financial remuneration to my life, <laughs> right. but it, you know, it's a challenge. I think there are a lot of, as I say, there are a lot of off ramps that people take, uh, ideological off ramps that dismiss what's possible and don't believe in it. And, uh, sometimes uh, people in the church strike me as being like the dwarves at the end of the, the last battle of C.S. Lewis's Narnia. They, they sit there bemoaning the world. You know, the dwarves are for the dwarves. And they're sitting there in the midst of this enormous, you know, region of paradise with the beauty of mountains and sky and nature. But all they can see is our enclosed space. And I, I'm like, you know, maybe there is some more beautiful fresh air and mountains out there. And, I, you know, I... I think there are people who are open to that, and I hope that they increase. May their tribe increase. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, now in 2004, you actually spoke at, as the opening keynote at the Center for Ethics and Culture's Fall Conference. You gave a talk entitled Shouts or Whispers, Faith and Doubt in Contemporary American Literature, which I will link to in the show notes. Uh, now, at the time, you mentioned a few contemporary authors who were writing from within uh, and, and struggling with faith um, in a way that you described as whispering. 
do you see? Are there new voices today that are doing that same thing? Or, or are we in a time when whispering isn't getting it done? You know, it's an interesting metaphor that um, I took originally from Doris Betts, a wonderful Southern writer um, who never became Catholic, though she she told me she wanted to be. <laughs> um, what Doris said was, as a Southern writer, she always thought of Flannery O'Connor's argument that for the deaf, for the hard of hearing, you have to shout. For the blind, for the nearly blind, you have to draw large and startling figures, which kind of explains the extremism in some ways of O'Connor, the violence and the grotesque as an aesthetic choice. She felt, you know, in a way that secularism had become such a dominant force that for her faith had to kind of shock you in and not be conventional, but, but remind you that these are, these are big, serious life changing matters that had consequences so she would write a novel in which a character drowns, but that drowning is actually to make you think about baptism, what dying dying in baptism and coming to new life might be. And I have great respect for that, and Doris Betts did too. But what she said was, I live in a different time period. O'Connor was during the big 20th century master narratives, Freud and Marx, that was a whole still very much a live debate at that point. Late in the 20th century, early in the 21st century, a lot of that had, we were in a postmodern era. And Bet said, you know, for me, I'm not going to write in a way that uses these shock kind of tactics as, as brilliant as they were. I'm going to write stories in which the, the, it's more like the still small voice of scripture, right? Mm-hmm. Of God, in the, not in the whirlwind, right? Not in the O'Connor-esque whirlwind. And I respected that. And I and I still argue that in some ways we're kind of in that period, time period. What I really want to, you know, in general, what I believe, and I, and I do believe this very strongly, is that we should not, people are sometimes tempted to say one artistic style is the true, the true way, neoclassicism or romanticism or whatever. I'm like, May a thousand flowers bloom, right? There are many different styles. I mean, I often tell people to take the little thought experiment. Imagine being a Romanesque architect walking into the first Gothic church. You know, from our perspective, we're looking at, oh, these are both medieval. We love them. That's the tradition. But the first Romanesque architect that looked at the first Gothic church was going to be pissed. He was going to be furious. Who are these guys to kind of do all these pointy arches and these all this light? I like my dark church. But from our perspective, we, we lumped them together in the beautiful, beloved medieval era. But that was an example of how artistic styles can change and both can be good. Right. It's not either or. It's a very Catholic answer to say both <laughs> and. It's one of the reasons why I became a Catholic. I came from a world where everything was either or. And no, life is more complex than that. And there's paradox, as Chesterton would say. And so I got, all I'm saying is, let there be whispers, let there be shouts, let there be honkings, let there be sniggers. I don't know. There's many different, let a thousand flowers bloom. There are many different stuff. You look at a guy like Randy Boyagoda, a contemporary writer. Mm-hmm. He's channeling kind of the Evelyn Waugh satire approach, the Swiftian satire you find somebody like Chris Beha, who's writing these novels, interconnected series of novels set in Manhattan. That's almost like Neo Anthony Trollope kind of contemporary cultural mores through kind of upscale 
New York society. Um, you know, you find somebody like um, Phil Cly, who's on the panel today here at the event, writing war stories in a way that, you know, are kind of reminiscent of some of the Vietnam vets, the Tim O'Brien and the Dennis, Dennis Johnsons and so on. So, I mean, my argument is there is a diversity of styles. Let's not, let's not say only one is the right way to go. Sure. Well, uh, you mentioned being here at the encounter. You actually presented, uh, presided over a panel discussing uh, a book that Slant published last year, The Meaning of Birth, uh, which is a transcript, an edited transcript of a conversation between Father Giussani and uh, Italian playwright Giovanni Testori. One of the things that struck me sitting in the audience was uh, an idea that was posited by um, in their conversation was this idea of life as pure gift. Uh, and the and uh, Rowan Williams in his in his foreword even mentions, you know, the life begins as something we receive. Right. Um, and this is an idea that actually is echoed in like the writing of uh, Alistair McIntyre when he talks about our interconnected, our interdependence and that uh, the only proper response is what uh, what uh, DCEC director Carter Sneed writes about in his book, uh, the responding in uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. Right. We receive and then we need to, to give away without counting the cost kind right. of deal. Exactly. These are fascinating themes, but like, does this have purchase? You know, this particular book is a conversation of two highly rhetorical Italians that, um, you know, to the Anglo-American mind, which is a little more linear uh, and pr progressivist when it comes to at least the progression of ideas, the way these guys circle around might be a little maddening at times. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I, I love the way that they circle. I've come, I've sort of, converted um they are really uh, unself-conscious about asking the biggest questions things today that you know we people would be almost embarrassed you know talk about what does it mean to be born you know what's what is the existential meaning of being born like are we conscious of it do we or do we act in ways that contradict the fundamental fact of our existence that we're given this existence. And Rowan Williams writes so well about that in his foreword to the book. And again, yeah, absolutely central to any ethical questions, right? Like what constitutes personhood, mm -hmm. right? And and this is a, a view this you know that's in this book that, of course, very much goes against the kind of pragmatist, utilitarian, you know, mechanistic definitions of what personhood and human flourishing are that you know, the church tradition uh, counters in so many ways. And the, the thinkers like Alistair McIntyre have, you know, very powerfully opposed with their work. Yeah. Greg, this has been a delightful conversation. Slant books, like, what is your vision for, for Slant? It's the Christian humanism thing. And not every book actually has to be about religion to be religious, if you see what I mean. It asks these big questions. I think, you know, what we're trying to do is um, retain a sense of mystery that um, every book should not necessarily be there to confirm what I already believe or be a reason for me to get angry at something I disagree. And, you know, what is the realm of ambiguity? What is the realm of, you know, is that is that the ultimately more ethical, more Christian approach? Like, to be aware of the mixed motives that we have, to kind of have a kind of epistemological humility 
And that's what great literature does. It it can celebrate things that need to celebrate, but it, it's constantly saying, but but then there's the danger of pride, of hubris. And let's look at both elements of this. And that's 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 woven in certainly to the scriptural tradition, where the least becomes the greatest, and the greatest often becomes the least. And it's also deeply, you know, even in our pagan literary tradition, where the Aeneid ends on a note of deep moral ambiguity about the supposed hero of the story, the founder of Rome. To me, that's at the heart of the classical Christian synthesis that gave rise to the ethic, ethical systems that we care about. And literature is the way, in a Christian humanist sense, of keeping us epistemologically humble and aware of, uh, you know, our need to be uh, sensitive to both the good and our capacity to betray that good and to know how fragile it can sometimes be to maintain it. Wonderful. Well, Greg Wolf, thank you so much for your time and uh, thanks for publishing these important works. Thank you, Ken. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to Greg Wolf. In the show notes, you will find links to his panel discussion at the New York Encounter, to his keynote at our 2004 fall conference, and to his work at Slant Books. Thank you also to our hosts at the 2022 New York Encounter, sponsored by the Lay Catholic Movement, Communion and Liberation. Learn more about the Encounter and CL in the show notes and at clonline.org. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. <laughs>